Would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms, Psalm 73. We are continuing our lesson series through the Psalter. This morning we come to a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Will you come to the Lord with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that we would see Christ now. That you would write your truth on the tablets of our hearts and cause us to be obedient and careful to live for you, for your glory and the glory of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Is the Christian life worth it? 
Is a life lived out for God worth it? That is the question that is before us. That is the question that the psalmist Asaph poses here in Psalm 73. Is a life lived out for God worth it? I imagine it's a question that most, perhaps all of you, have asked yourself at one time or another. Is the Christian life, is a life for God worth it? Well, in the first 15 verses of this psalm, Asaph is very, very, very close to saying, no, it's not worth it. He sees the wicked, the godless, living comfortable lives. He sees no no outward signs of godliness being beneficial at all. In fact, he sees the complete opposite. He sees godlessness being beneficial. Godlessness being rewarded. He sees what we see today, doesn't he? Injustice, cruelty, foolishness, living in the lap of luxury, living in the lap of comfort. And he sees and he comes to the brink of saying, living a life for God is simply not worth it. But then there's a paradigm shift in the latter half of the psalm, verses 16 through 28. And the psalmist comes to see that, yes, the Christian life is worth it. What is the turning point for Asaph? Well, we see it in verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. Until I came into the house of God. For the psalmist, his view of life drastically changes when he comes into the house of God and he beholds the presence of God. And his view on life drastically changes. He comes to see that indeed, yes, a life lived out for God is worth it. And so this psalm can really be broken down simply into two sections. The first 15 verses, a view of life when God is distant. And then verses 16 through 28, a view of life when God is near. Verses 1 through 15, a view of life when God is distant. Verses 16 through 28, a view of life when God is near. So first, a view of life when God is distant. Verse 1 is really a thematic Verse We read in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It is really the conclusion of Psalm 73, pushed all the way to the front here in verse 1. The psalmist is in effect saying, I have seen that God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but let me tell you about a time where I almost slipped. So verse 1 is really the conclusion of the experience we see Asaph having in Psalm 73. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Verse 2 through 3, we are told that Asaph comes close to slipping. He became envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's amazing how often in Scripture we see the downward slope into sin begins with people seeing. 
And seeing in Scripture often is a two-part process. It's first the seeing, a physical seeing with the eyes, and then a seeing with the heart. The heart starts to cling to the sin and the thing that God hates and abhors. It's amazing how often we see our eyes being the avenue towards sin. We think of Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. They see the fruit is good for eating. And their heart starts to cling towards disobedience to God. We think of Genesis 6 and the increasing corruption on the earth that eventually leads to the great flood and judgment of God. What does it all start with? Genesis 6-2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attracted. We see it with David in 2 Samuel 11 and Bathsheba. David sees Bathsheba bathing, and then the downward slope of sin begins. Conspiracy, murder, cover-up. Scripture, time and time again, shows us that sin so often begins with what we see, both with our eyes and with our hearts. A physical seeing that leads to a spiritual seeing. Asaph is seeing with his eyes, and his heart is close to slipping. Why? Why is Asaph's heart close to slipping? Well, verse 4 through 11, we see what the wicked are like. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. No suffering. They die peacefully. They are fat and sleek. They die well fed. Verse 5, they are not in trouble like others are. They are not stricken like the rest. They die peacefully and they live peacefully. In verse 6, we see that due to this peaceful living and dying, they are prideful and they are violent. Then verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. This is really just a Hebrew idiom that means that they are prosperous. Yet their hearts are filled with follies. They are fools. They're fools, yet they're prosperous. They're prosperous fools. You can almost hear Asaph at this point saying, Life just isn't fair. Why? Why are fools rewarded? Verse 8 through 9, they use their mouths to deride and oppress man. They use their mouths to deride and challenge God. They speak against the heavens. They are blasphemous. It's amazing when you watch television what they're willing to bleep out, but they can say the Lord's name in vain all day long. They're blasphemous. Verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. His people, that is God's people, God's covenant people, Israel, turn back to the wicked. The second line literally says in the Hebrew, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. God's people, Israel, sees the success of the wicked. They see the prosperity and their hearts, the eyes of their hearts, start to cling towards that wickedness. And they drink in that success. They drink in that prosperity. Verse 11, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? The wicked say, God doesn't see the wickedness. God doesn't know the sinfulness of man. God isn't omnipresent, all-seeing. God isn't omniscient, all-knowing. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And then verse 12, we get the summary of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Do you think you can write verses 1 through 12 today? Maybe not as eloquently and as poetically as Asaph can. But I certainly think we could write what we see here in these first 12 verses of our culture today. Verses 13 and 14, Asaph now turns from looking at the wicked, now to looking at himself. Verses 13 through 14, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Unlike the wicked in verse 5 who are never stricken, Asaph is stricken every single morning. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hand in innocence. What is the point? Why live a life for God when I suffer and the wicked prosper? What's going on here with Asaph? Why is Asaph so close to slipping? Well, Asaph is beginning to be defined by the world around him. He's beginning to find his identity in the world around him. The circumstances that surround Asaph are beginning to define his life. You see, the problem for Asaph, and so often for us, isn't really the wicked. The problem is our outlook on life. And our outlook on life will determine how we see the world around us. I imagine at this point, if Asaph were to look out at the wicked and he sees them living a life of misery, he would shout praises to God. He would still have the same problem, though. The circumstances around him would still be dictating his view on life and determining his definition of God. Asaph's problem here is that he has much too small a view of God. We so often dwindle God down to size, don't we? God is so often defined by our limited experience of the world around us. So that God is attached, glued, if you will, to our circumstances. He doesn't transcend our circumstances. No, He is limited to our circumstances in life. The God of the universe, the God of the cosmos, the God who has established the heavens and the sky, who has established the mountains, who causes the roaring seas to roar, is dwindled down and placed into a little bottle of me and my experiences on the world. So that my finite, limited experiences on life define the infinite, unlimited God. Asaph's problem here is that he has much too small a view of God. Yet notice verse 15, Asaph is still a believer. 
Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph doesn't want to harm the faith of God's people. So he won't voice these doubts, these concerns to the people of God. He doesn't want to betray God's people. So we see that Asaph first looks at the wicked. He then moves to look at himself. And now he looks at the church of God. The assembly of God's people. The family of God. And this keeps Asaph from sleep. Certainly he's on ice. He's on a slippery slope. But the church, if you will, is there to hold him up. He's not on solid ground yet. We'll see solid ground in verse 17. But for the meantime, the church serves as his anchor. As he's trying to reach shore and to reach solid and safe ground. The church is keeping him from fully sinking. I think of Paul in prison. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's nearing the end of his life. He's in a dark, dingy prison. He's, he's got the whole world against him. And in verse 9, chapter 4, what is it that Paul says? He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. In the time of his struggle, in the time of darkness, in the time when the world is against him, Paul seeks the companionship of his brother in Christ. He seeks the companionship of the church to help him in the dark time in his life. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of seasons in our life where God seems distant, God gives us each other to hold each other up, to be an anchor in our times of darkness, in our times when it seems the world is against us. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are an instrument of God's grace so that we will be anchored and that the church will lead us and direct our gaze on the solution to all our problems, which is God and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church, don't take the church for granted. It is an instrument of God's grace for you in your times of struggle for you in your times of doubt. So in verses 1 through 15, Asaph sees the wicked. He sees himself and he sees the church, but he is yet to see God. He is yet to behold God's face. God is distant in his mind and in his heart, but all that changes in the second half of Psalm 73. So we move on to the next section, a view of life when God is near. A view of life when God is near. Verse 16, Asaph says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is alone here, just himself and the wicked, and he cannot wrap his mind around why the wicked are prospering. It's a wearisome task for him to figure it out. Have you ever felt like that? He can't figure it out. But then verse 17, it all shifts. It all changes. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, 
Then I discerned their end. What is it that causes this turning point for Asaph? Well, he entered into the holy place where God promised he would be. And he enters into corporate worship. He has been seeing the world through the lens of the wicked and himself, and now he sees it from the perspective of God. And that perspective of God is seen in worship. Notice the difference between verse 16 and 17. He is burdened by the world around him and his incapability of understanding it. And it is beholding God in worship that destroys that burden. Have you ever walked into Sunday worship utterly burdened by the world around you? By the circumstances in your life? And then you hear the congregation sing. And you hear prayers pray. You hear the word read. You hear the word preach. You hear of Christ and Him crucified and His victory over sin and death for us. And that burden is shed from your back. You're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he comes before that cross. And that burden that he's been carrying on his back is shed. It's release. Bless cross. Nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross do I cling. You start to see the world that burdens you so through the perspective of a transcendent and holy and awesome God. That is why Asaph is able to discern the end of the wicked. Because he sees the wicked now through the lens of God. Notice that what comforts Asaph is that God is the one bringing the justice. Verse 18, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 20, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In getting a clear picture of God, Asaph is given a clear picture of God's control over evil itself. As the wicked prosper in their ways, at the same time, God is setting them in slippery places. So that Asaph can say in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. It's as though both Asaph and the wicked are walking in the dark in verses 1 through 15. And Asaph is given a pair of night vision binoculars. And he's able to see that path that the godless have freely chosen is the same path that God has set up which will lead ultimately to destruction. What is it that causes depression? What is it that that causes anxiety? What is it that causes hopelessness in our lives? It is the feeling that we are not in control. And if we aren't in control, then all is lost. But when we behold the presence of God in worship, the curtain is pulled back, and we get a glimpse of who is truly in control. 
and we can be at peace. That God is sovereign over all things, the good and the and that we are in his heavenly and fatherly embrace. Verses 21 through 22, we are told that Asaph's soul was embittered. He was a beast towards God. He was a beast towards God. You ever been a beast toward God? Yet notice verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right. Notice what it is that Asaph doesn't say. He doesn't say, when my soul was embittered, when I was a beast towards you, you weren't with me. But now that my mind is right, now that I'm no longer a fool, now you're with me. Now that I've got my cards straight, now that I've got my life in order, now you are with me. No. Even though I am a fool, even though I am a beast, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. You will receive me into glory. And the thought of this causes Asaph to break out in doxology in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Though I am a fool, though I am a beast, though I am a sinner, God will never let me go. Praise be to God. That's the idea here. Though I am a beast, God will never let me go. Praise to God. Asaph here is experiencing the grace of God. And Asaph is a changed man because of it. Notice in verse 13, before he comes into the presence of God, Asaph could say, My heart is pure. My hands, they're clean. But the wicked, they suffer. I'm pure. I'm good. But the wicked, the wicked, they they prosper. Isn't that so often the way that we think when we look at non-Christians when God is distant? And they do all these things that we would never dream of, yet they get promotions. Yet they they get new jobs. They have good-looking families. They have all these great vacations. Their Facebook pages are nothing but smiles all the time. They're so bad, but I'm so good. Why am I not getting rewarded? God must not be good because He's not rewarding me and my goodness. But now, Asaph has not only gotten a vision of himself, he's got, excuse me, he has not only gotten a vision of God, he has gotten a vision of himself. He's a sinner whose heart will fail, whose flesh will fail, whose mind will fail. Yet God, by His grace and His love, will always be by His side, directing, encouraging, convicting, 
discipline all the way to the end, even to glory itself. Brothers and sisters, what is it that you put your confidence in today? Is it your own heart? Is it your own mind? Or is it in God whose grace is sufficient to end the work that He has begun in you and will take you all the way to glory itself? Asaph has experienced the wonderful and amazing grace of God. And then in verse 27 through 28, we read, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. A true experience of God and his grace will always, always, always lead to a life of faithfulness. God's grace is not meant to produce and God's grace is not meant to produce complacency. It is meant to produce an active pursuit of God. Asaph doesn't bask in the grace of God and then go back to his own ways. No, God's grace is a grace that changes Asaph. God's grace is a grace that changes those who experience it. Asaph says, unlike the wicked who are faithless and end in despair, I will be wise. I will be faithful. I will make God my refuge. There is a troubling trend, I think, in the church today that that looks at God's grace in a way that so often produces complacency that so often produces a sort of Christian laziness. But brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear time and time again. If we have not been changed by God's grace, if our life has not been changed by God's grace, we most likely have not truly experienced the grace of God. Hear these words in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will move the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. God's grace is not an ineffective grace. It is an effective grace. It is a grace that is meant to stir us up. To stir us up to actively pursue God and His goodness. It is a grace that gives us a thirst for God. It is a grace that is to cause us to hunger for more and more and more of God. It is a grace that reorients our whole outlook on life. It is a grace that reshapes our daily desires which are to be centered on God and His glory. It is a grace that is shared with others. Notice the end of verse 28. That I may tell 
of all your works. That I may tell all your works. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, Let your, shine, let your light shine before me, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When we experience the grace of God, we are to share that marvelous grace of God and His works with others. What is it that we come to a knowledge of when we look at the cross of Christ? Well, we come to understand what the end of sin and the wickedness that Asaph sees in this psalm, we come to understand what is its end. It is death. It is God's judgment. The cross is not only to reshape the way we see ourselves, it is to reshape the way we see everyone in our lives. The cross shows us that if we are not united to Christ by faith, it won't be Christ facing the judgment, it will be us. And so we share it, the good news of Christ, with our neighbors, our loved ones, and our friends. We tell of how God's judgment has been poured out on Christ for all who are united to Him by faith. And no longer judgment hangs over our head. No longer wickedness, wickedness reigns. But Christ at the cross has put an end to wickedness. And we tell our friends, we tell our neighbors of Christ so that those who are once far off and be brought near to God by the blood of His Son. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for Christ, who is our propitiation for our sins, and whose blood draws us near to You. We pray, O Father, that we would know Your grace that is found in the person of your Son, and that in experiencing your grace, we would be made active stewards for you and for your kingdom, and actively pursue you in all that we do. For as Paul says, in whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We pray, O oh Father, help us to do this by the power of your Spirit in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray now. Amen.